0: Hey everybody, how's it going? This is Hub, and welcome back to another episode of Titan Up The Defense, a podcast that would likely benefit from a tagline. As I believe I just mentioned, my name's Hub, and I hope you're having a fine whenever the heck it is you end up listening to this. Me? I'm doing okay, although there's been something going on on social media lately that's been leaving me a little bit confused. Everybody's going so crazy about how cute this baby Yoda is. I'm sorry, but living on a house in the woods that's on chicken legs is cute these days? Okay. I guess flying around in a giant mortar while wielding a pestle and threatening to eat children is what passes for adorable these days. Well, maybe I'm just old-fashioned. But in my day, Forcing your house guests to perform a series of impossible chores with the aid of their magic doll under threat of being cooked in your oven wasn't the sort of thing that we considered bay. I mean we all did it, we just didn't think it was considered cute. Kids today. Anyway, that's enough Andy Rooneying around for now. So without any further ado, let's uh do this. Today's Synopsis Rhyme is submitted by Fred Groves. Holy Bat Poetry. Nightwing Dickie Grayson, Chiropted Man's first son, dislikes the Swiss. But don't be mistaken, impartiality is not why he hates them. Now, Synopsis. Thanks, Fred. New Teen Titans, Volume 2, Number 8, May, 1985. There Might Be Giants. Written by Marv Wolfman. Drotted by Jose Luis Garcia Lopez, inked by Romeo Tangal, lettered by John Costanza, and colored by Adrienne Roy. Teen Titan Roll Call Lilith, Nightwing, Starfire, Cyborg, Wonder Girl, Beast Boy, Jericho, and Zach Wingman. Previously in New Teen Titans, in one of their early adventures, the new Teen Titans ran afoul of the not-so-new, not-so-teen Titans of Greek mythology. The Titan, who the ancient Greeks called Hyperion, but I call Fuckface on account of he was a fuckface, kidnapped Wonder Girl and hypnotized her into being in love with him. Donna was already engaged to Terry Long, but that didn't bother Fuckface because 1. He was a fuckface, and B, He was already married, too, to his sister Thea. But she wasn't around, so he figured he was free to kidnap and hypnotize teenagers. With Donna's help, Fuckface freed the rest of his old Greek titan buddies. The Teen Titans teamed up with the gods of Olympus to fight them, and a regular celestial Donnybrook broke out. When the dust settled, the OG titans, with the exception of the strangely absent Thea, agreed to go back to Tartarus, the ancient Greek version of Hell, and try to tidy the place up a little. After returning home, our titular teenagers met a recently defrosted amnesiac alien angel whose spaceship had crashed in the Arctic. The amnesiac alien angel, who Cory and I named Zack Wingman, formed a deep and instant bond with occasionally telepathic occasional teen titan Lilith. An unfortunate side effect of this inexplicable emotional connection was that Lilith started radiating intense heat and melted everything around her. The suddenly smoldering sporadic psychic passed out and the rest of the Titans decided that Zack was probably a jerk who was trying to hurt Lilith. So they attacked him. Unable to communicate with his attacker, Zack flew off to live in an Ewok treehouse in Pendleton, Oregon for a while. Hurray! During his arboreal sabbatical, I guess Zack learned to speak English, because when he returned to New York a few months later to rekindle his nascent romance with Lilith, the avian appendaged extraterrestrial was much more communicative. He explained that he meant Lilith no harm, which Lilith corroborated enthusiastically. The Treston ingenue added the exposition that she periodically caught on fire for no apparent reason. One reason why she had spent the majority of her life searching in vain for her birth parents was the hope that they might explain the cause of her irregular intervals of unintentional immolation. No sooner had Lilith finished her exposition dump than a red-headed flying business lady showed up, melted the wall of the apartment, and was like, Surprise, Lilith! I'm your mom! The magma-flinging alleged matriarch grabbed Lilith, attacked Zack Wingman and the Titans, and then disappeared through a lava portal she formed in the sky. After recovering from the assault which accompanied the arsonist abduction, our protagonist figured out that Lilith's mom was none other than the aforementioned Thea, fuckface's missing sibling-slash-spouse. Hoping to question the OG Titans about where Thea might have taken Lilith, Zack Wingman and the Titans headed to Donna's girlhood home on Paradise Island, which harbored the only known entrance to Tartarus. When they arrived, they found that the island was in shambles, and Donna's mom and the other Amazons were missing. GADZOOKS! how will the gods of Olympus react to Thea's return? If the Sky Titan Thea is Lilith's mother, then who is her dad? And without the aid of the absent Amazons, how will our heroes find their missing chum? Stay tuned to find out. Okay, so mostly by getting lit on fire, some guy who owned a publishing company, and by making eye contact with a statue. Thea strolls around the wreckage of Mount Olympus and idly tortures Zeus and the other Greek gods. I guess since the end of the last issue, she whooped all of the gods of Olympus and wrecked the joint. As she tells her cowering daughter Lilith how great it is to be her, Thea lights Zeus on fire and batters him around like a flaming hacky sack. Eventually she gets sick of that shit and starts telling Lilith about her backstory. Turns out that about 80 or so years ago, Thea was hanging out in Tartarus, imprisoned alongside the rest of her siblings. Then a stray sunbeam somehow managed to hit her and she got all hyped up on account of the sun as her kid, I guess. She hulked out and busted out of the ancient Greek hell, and started strutting around on the surface world. Over the course of the last eight decades, she's been seducing and bearing children with a variety of powerful and influential men, usually burninating them to death as soon as they've impregnated her. Her offspring with these now-deceased captains of industry are in positions of power all around the world awaiting Thea's orders. Lilith's dad was a wealthy publishing magnate. After she murdered him, Thea started running his business, and under her leadership, it has become the third most successful publishing house in the world. Third, huh? I like that she's the titan who imbued gold and silver with their value, is the son's mom? and can kick the shit out of the entire Greek pantheon single-handedly. And Marf Mulfun was like, Yeah, but I don't know if she could take on Random House. I mean, I want to keep this comic realistic. Anyway, when Lilith was still a baby, her nanny wised up to the fact that Thea was a total dick, and decided to kidnap the child she'd been charged with rearing. Thea was pretty pissed off about that, and has been searching for Lilith ever since. Every time Lilith has randomly caught on fire, Thea's been able to zero in on her a little bit more. The other day's bout of spontaneous combustion finally allowed Thea's ancient Greek Lilith detector to lock in on her occasionally intuitive offspring. When Thea finishes her exposition, a captive flaming Zeus is like, Enjoy your victory while you can, Thea, because when your siblings, the OG Titans, find out what you're doing, they're going to come kick your ass. Thea's like, Nah, I'm good, I got shit handled. Thanks for the heads up, but you can go back to eternally burning to death now. Gee, as shitty an absentee mom as Thea's been to Lilith, she's an even worse aunt to her nephew Zeus. Thanksgivings on Mount Olympus must suck. Back on the Titan's jet, which is hovering above Paradise Island, Donna explains to the rest of the gang that her mom and the other Amazons are missing. She's pretty pissed off about this and blames Thea. Her teammates assure her that they will help her kick Thea's butt. Pretty confident, guys. Who do you think you are, Simon and Schuster? Zack Wingman offers to wrestle the universe if that would help. It wouldn't, but thanks, Zack. Wonder Girl thinks she knows a secret way to find out where Thea is. When she was a little kid, she was up late spying on her mom Hippolyta, probably trying to see where her Panathenae presents were hidden. While she was snooping, she saw the Amazonian Queen fly up to the giant statue of Athena that overlooks the island stand on its outstretched hand, and make eye contact with the stone edifice. Then she disappeared in a flash of light. Donna does the same thing now, and as she suspected might happen, she and Starfire are teleported to the Oraculum, a weird space island filled with skulls and ornate statues. Donna has read about this place and learned that once there, you can see any place in the universe. Neat! Donna asked to see Tartarus, A magic portal opens in the sky through which Donna and Coriander see Fuckface and the rest of his OG titan brethren getting their asses whooped by a bunch of grotesque giants. Despite the fact that the feelings she once had for Fuckface were artificially forced upon her through his magic bullshit, Donna still feels a connection to him. It upsets her greatly to see him in pain. Not me, though. I love that shit. Get him, grotesque giants! Hooray! Suddenly, the vision in the portal changes its focus to Mount Olympus. Thea sits glowering on Zeus's throne, with a crying Lilith at her feet. She looks up and sees what I guess is now a two-way portal. Uh Uh-oh! Enraged, the ancient Titan sends a blast of magma at a startled Wonder Girl. Fortunately, before the stream of lava hits Donna, Starfire intercedes and manages to deflect the majority of the attack. The Amazonian teen's shoulder is singed, but she's otherwise unharmed. Donna and Coriander head back to the jet to fill the rest of the gang in on what just happened. The team decides to head back to the oraculum together to see if they can figure out a course of action. Nightwing is like, I don't know, guys, maybe we should call some grown-up heroes and let them handle this. The rest of the Titans somehow resist the urge to say, Aw, do want to wait in the jet until the Batman can come and change your little bat diaper? But... Starfire manages to convey a more diplomatic version of that message, and Dick shuts up and goes along with the rest of the big kids. Within a few minutes of arriving on the magic Greek space island, another portal opens in the sky. But this time, instead of showing our protagonists a vision of Tartarus, the portal beams them there directly so that they can witness the carnage firsthand. Fuckface sees the Teen Titans arrive and is like, Oh, hey Donna, looks like you came back to be my girlfriend. Sweet, I figured you would. Then an enormous blue giant stabs him in the back with a huge spear. Hooray! The marauding giants are the OG Titans' dickhead older brothers. Thea freed them from their imprisonment in Tartarus and told them to murder their younger siblings. The giants were like, Cool, we were pretty much going to do that anyway. The New Teen Titans team up with the old Greek Titans and fight the giants. I guess Hyperion isn't dead from the giant's spear attack, but he passes out from the pain. Once he does, Jericho hops into his body and starts blasting giants with his sun power. A big purple guy tries to throw a spear at Jericho slash fuckface, but Starfire impales him on the blade of one of his fallen comrades. A giant jerk with seafoam green skin tries to squish Cyborg and Dick under his gargantuan feet, but Coriander stabs him with the spear she just yanked off his dead purple buddy. Dang. Dick is like, Cory, stop murdering giants! But she's like, Nope. Then she kills another giant. Hooray! I mean, I get that no murdering is generally a pretty good rule, but come on, these are mythological evil jerks that are trying to kill Starfire and her friends. That green guy said he was going to eat them. Plus, his knee was a pile of angry lizards, and I'm not sure why, but I feel like that's a mitigating factor. Starfire's murder spree seems to have turned the tide of the battle, but the giants are still doing a great deal of damage. Then billowing clouds of darkness start filling the air. Phoebe and Coeus, the titans of the moon and night, arrive. Once they show up, the titans, new and old alike, make short work of the remaining giants. Oceanus, the titan of the deep, mourns the death of his wife Tethys. Rhea, the titan of the earth, consoles him by pointing out that a bunch of other titans died too. Gee. How comforting. Also, the other titans that she mentions as having died are Iapetus and Eurybia, who are respectively the titans of quality woodworking and being pretty good at sailing. So, if there's a redshirt version of being an ancient Greek titan, it is definitely those guys. And by redshirt, I mean the Star Trek version where they get killed easily, not the college sports version where they sit out their freshman year so that they can try to dominate the league in their fifth year. I mean, as much as I love woodworking and I guess being good at knots, I just don't see there being a time when Iapetus and Eurybia are gonna dominate any pantheon, regardless of how long they sit. Anyway, in the aftermath of the battle, the new Teen Titans explain to their old Greek counterparts that the individual behind their misery is their old buddy-slash-sister-slash-spouse, Thea. At first, Fuckface is like, No way! But Zack Wingman is like, Yup! And then Fuckface is like, Shit! The Titans all stand together and yell at the sky swearing vengeance. Then, a huge floaty guy in a long purple robe appears in the sky above them. He has a book chained to his arm like it's a briefcase in a spy movie. He addresses the various Titanses and Zack Wingmen below him, saying, Hi, my name is Destiny. Also, my job title is Destiny. If you guys mess with Thea, your whole world is going to die. But hey, do whatever you want. I'm not one to interfere. That's more my angsty goth brother's thing. He's going to show up about four years from now and be a really big deal for teenagers in the 90s. Now, what was I saying again? Oh, yeah. Doom! To be continued. And joining us once again is my good-for-many-things brother, Corey. Corey, how are you doing? I'm doing well. Feeling okay. Glad to hear it. How about you? I'm doing pretty good. Yeah? Got a new vacuum cleaner. I saw that. You've got yourself a... Uh... Was it called a Titan? It's called a Titan T-9000. Whoa. That means it's nine times as powerful as that murder robot from RoboCop. Oh my god. That was the T-1000. You should be very careful. It's going to be able to climb stairs, Cory. Oh. Next thing you know, you'll be driving
1: a, what was it, a 2000 SUX? Huh? The RoboCop car, the sports car. Oh, is that what it was? It was some number and then SUX. And it had, like, the Viper... Yeah, Auto safety it. program in yep. it. Mm-hmm. Oh, pretty good. Yep. Wait, no. The Viper's a real
0: one. Oh. But it doesn't electrocute m- people. Maybe it was the ASP? Was it named after a snake? I can't remember. Uh nor can I. But anyway, it seems like a pretty good vacuum cleaner. Well it better be. Yeah. Cause uh let me tell you this, Corey. Mm. I bought it for more than a dollar. Oh, I get I get your Robocop joke you uh-huh. there. Uh huh. Yeah. Anyway, so I'm planning on feeding it a lot of baby food. Um. Because that's what RoboCop had to eat. Oh, that's right. Yeah. Gross. Yeah, all super gross. My dad liked to eat baby food. And I don't mean when he was a baby, although probably then too. Also, the image of Peter Weller's bald pate stuffed into that robot suit with baby food going in his mouth altogether Yeah, that was easily the most disturbing scene in that movie. <laughs> hey, <laughs> it stuck. So Corey, yes, what'd you think of this comic book? Holy mackerel, what an amazing collection of drawings. It is so good. It made me so happy reading it. And I knew Jose Luis Garcia Lopez was a great artist going into it, but I had still been prepared for a drop off in quality after Perez. But no, this is fucking amazing. It really is. Every panel a masterpiece. I don't think I have ever had a more difficult time picking out a favorite panel from a comic book. And not just in terms of the rendering of the characters, but like the layout and the storytelling, it's just all so masterfully done. It made me very, very happy.
1: Yeah, same here. There were a couple points where I had a little bit of trouble following the flow of the word bubbles, but I didn't really care because (laughs) it was just awesome.
0: Yeah, I agree. And it was the kind of thing where it was pretty easy to correct after. Like, It wasn't like, I can't keep track of this, it was, oh, I read these in the wrong order, but I guess this is the right order. Mm -hmm. And then there was a story, which was fine. It would maybe be nice for me if one of the books that we were following didn't have a billion characters in it right now. So many. So, so many. All of Greek mythology is in this title. (laughs) Yeah, and I know
1: that was an interest of yours since childhood and your uh, mental capacity for storage is somewhat greater than mine when it comes to things that you've read once or twice
0: <laughs> and so i was just like
1: i feel like i should know all these people
0: but Honestly, i recognize like two of the names i felt the same way most of my knowledge of greek mythology comes from Dolaire's book of greek mythology i feel like most of the really enduring tales from greek mythology or the more popular ones anyway do not really involve the titans they're just about the Greek gods who supplanted the original Titans. Mm. But it all gets folded into one mythos with with all of that stuff. I feel like with ancient mythology, it's like improv comedy. There's like a lot of yes anding to like previously established narratives. Like one region will be like, this is Barthos. He's the god of waffles. And then this other culture that they encounter will just be like, Oh, well, this is Bim Black. He's the god of waffles. And in an attempt to appease the other culture, the first one will be like, Oh yeah, Bim Black. No, we love Bim Black. He's great. Yeah. Um, But we already have a god of waffles, so now yours is the god of waffles and hats. And that'll go on for a while, and then like the second society will fall out of favor with the first, and then they'll just be like... Oh, no, Bim Black's still the god of waffles and hats, but he's also a total dick and he did all this fucked up stuff. And so now he's evil. And I feel like that's kind of what happened with the Titans and the Giants and the Olympic Greek gods. And it just becomes this really confusing Gordian knot of narratives that are all kind of tied together and inextricable from one another, Hmm. and you just have to slice it in half and then conquer the known world. Well, all right, thanks for listening. (laughs) We've got a lot of work
1: to do. (laughs) Yeah, that makes sense. It did? Oh, good. That's honestly a surprise to me. (laughs) Well, you had to have read the comic, I think, but it it does make sense. Everybody Um, comes off looking like a, a jerk, whether you're in the giant camp, the original Titans camp, or the uh, Olympians camp, there's a lot of jerkiness to be
0: shared around. I feel like that's kind of the case with Greek mythology in general. I feel like it's supposed to be, like, a descending level of dickitude as you go through generations. Like... Dickitude.
1: Yeah. Like, like, total... a, like a bad attitude.
0: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like, apex dicks are Gaia and Uranus. And then... Okay, so at Uranus we've reached peak dick. Exactly. <laughs> Man, if we named the episodes that we have, that would totally be what this episode would be named. <laughs> <Peter>. <laughs> no, at Uranus, we've reached peak dick. <laughs> but, like, they were the biggest assholes, mm-hmm. and then you get the Titans and Giants, who are the next biggest level of assholes, who are their kids. Sure. With the Giants, I think, being more monstrous jerks, and the Titans being more pretty jerks. Mm-hmm. And then you get the Titans kids, the Olympic Greek gods. And they're still total dicks, but they're less dickish than the Titans. Mm -hmm. And, yeah. Well, then you get people. Right, who are, you know, great and not dicks at all. Yeah, what happened? Weird. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, the other weird thing about this book, mythologically speaking, that did kind of throw me for a loop is, as I was reading it, I did keep thinking, Huh lot of gingers on Mount Olympus. Mm. There is a surprisingly high concentration of pale-skinned, red-haired people who are Greek gods of ancient times. Genetically speaking, a pretty rare thing to be popping up. And a recessive one, but I feel like when you get the mix of genetics and deification, you get some weird shit going on in that direction. Mm. Because, I mean, I would also imagine that having a pile of lizards for your knee is a recessive trait, but we do see that represented amongst the giants. Or a bunch of long-tongued tiger heads for toes? Yeah, there is some bonkers character design in this book. And I mean, it's gorgeous, and it's really fun to look at, but it is also just like, how's that work? There was a few panels in there where I was
1: pretty sure that Lopez had at some point perhaps experimented with psychedelics, because it's difficult for me to I mean, I guess it's just, it could be a fertile imagination.
0: But yeah. Wow. Yeah, there is a lot going on, especially with the character design on the giants. Although, I mean, the design of the statues in the weird space island that Donna goes to, also a real thing. Bunch of, I don't know, sphinxes made out of skulls and shit. and
1: That look like they're carved out of like a, it's like one of those Swan Swarovski crystal center Pieces, Right, but but
0: that's been skeletonized and is probably also from space. Yeah. Yeah. And that whole sequence where Donna goes to the oraculum, I believe it is, Mm -hmm. which I think is supposed to be a representation of the oracle Adelphi, Delphi, but I'm not entirely sure. It's been a while since I've read either Dolaire's book of Greek mythology or Edith Hamilton's mythology, which are the two main sources I have for Greek myths. I don't know if they were initially accessible by looking at a statue. That seems like it's got to be a pretty well-guarded secret because essentially anybody can just hop up there and be like, (laughs) okay,
1: staring contest, and they pop right into the oraculum.
0: Right. Well, Donna does bring up the point that literally nobody else on the island knows about it except for her and her mom, and she only knows because she spied on her mom when she was like a little kid. I do think it is interesting that it does appear to be a running theme throughout these books. It's a cautionary tale that I really applaud Marv Wolfman for bringing to the forefront, which is making eye contact is always very dangerous, so you should probably never do it. Contact! (laughs) Yeah, you get Jericho, Mm -hmm. you get this fucking statue of Athena, you lock eyes with that thing, oh, you're in for a world of trouble. It's like that squirrel that jumped on you when you were When you were a kid. Yeah, it's exactly like that. It was a chipmunk, and it was terrifying. Oh, but they're so cute. (laughs) (laughs) They're cute, all right. But then they'll scoop your damn eyeballs out. That's horrifying. Yeah, I think that's raccoons that do that. That makes more sense to me. Yeah, they have bigger paws. Creepy. More human-like.
1: Creepy hands.
0: Either way, you don't want either one of them jumping onto your forehead when you're seven. I'll tell you that much. Oh, I believe you. (laughs) So any listeners out there, if you're planning on being seven and having a chipmunk or a raccoon jump on your face, don't do it. Yeah. And to preclude that, don't make eye contact with them if you see them. Right. Which I think it makes sense that that would be a Marv Wolfman moral that is a through line throughout his Mm. work because he grew up and was raised his whole life in New York. So, you know, I feel like that's a that's a
1: thing. I had a East Coast, West Coast, moment this morning. I was in the locker room at the gym getting changed and some guy walked in and I think he said something like, hey, how's it going? But I just assumed he wasn't talking to me. Right. Because it was very out of the blue and weird. And then halfway through changing, I was like, there's nobody else in here. I think he was just being friendly and I
0: totally ignored him like a jerk. Corey, you did the right thing. It seemed natural. (laughs) Yeah. Did you catch the title of this issue? Mm -mm. It's called There Might Be Giants, oh, which is interesting because I feel like this is the last era that this could have come out where that would be referencing the 1971 movie, They Might Be Giants, instead of the popular band. Mm Kind of popular band, They Might Be Giants. I think they're still around. I
1: heard a public radio thing and they were on some show. I'm pretty sure they are.
0: And I'm glad they are. I, I like them a lot. I think Apollo 18 is an underrated album. I'm not super familiar with their body of work. Have you seen the movie They Might Be Giants? Uh, No, I haven't seen that. You should check it out. It's really good. It's George C. Scott. He plays a judge who, after his wife dies, retreats into a world of fantasy in which he believes himself to be Sherlock Holmes. Wow. And a psychiatrist ends up treating him. And then when he finds out that her name is Watson, then they end up kind of going on adventures together that are based on his delusions. And it's a really fun movie. And it's really good. As based on uh Don Quixote yeah. thing, where he's like tilting at windmills and imagining that they are giants. The character says something along the lines of, uh, well, of course, it's silly to think that every windmill is a giant. But, you know, some of them might be. That sounds like a charming film. Uh-huh, and a good attitude towards windmills. They've had it too good for too long. Give them the real benefit of the doubt. A little bit. Or... Detriment of belief. I
1: always get those two mixed up.
0: We learned a little bit more about Thea in this issue. We learned that she was very successful in her dating career with famous people from astronauts to pop stars. Wait, that was just a March of Time type thing. Do you think she was having sex with astronauts and. She said she dated a lot of powerful people, and there's pictures of the Beatles (laughs) and Neil Armstrong, (laughs) and yeah. And I thought that was just a time marches on, like, montage of, here's the eras that I lived through, but I like your interpretation a lot better. Yeah, she kind of sets herself up as, like, a gender swap to Zeus, Mm -hmm. just, like, going around and horn dogging her way through the mortal world, and good for her. I mean, kind of. She does murder a lot of people. Again, not unlike Zeus. Mm -hmm. But yeah, that is one gorgeous montage, too. It's a really nice representation of time marching on. But there are a couple of weird touches in her character development because one of the things that you see in that is when she first makes it to man's world, it's apparently World War I era because there's a bunch of biplanes that are going to war with each other. Mm-hmm. And she's like, whoa. And then there's a panel in which she says, and now men have weapons that could destroy a god, which is, I mean, true. I'm assuming she's referring to nuclear weapons. But the image that is shown in that panel is a picture of the Statue of Liberty.
1: Oh, I didn't uh, read it that way.
0: (laughs) And I was just like, wait, is there a hidden weapon in the Statue of Liberty? Where it's specifically a weapon that could destroy gods? Is this predicting the events that transpired in Ghostbusters 2? Is that based on something that Thea discovered? Because Vigo the Carpathian does think himself a god, and the Ghostbusters are able to harness the Statue of Liberty and make it walk around and defeat a god, does she have a touch of Lilith's prophecy in her? Is that, like, one of her nascent abilities? Either way, it makes this comic book eerily prescient. It really
1: does. <laughs> Once again, and I don't mind you got
0: there, sir. I, I wouldn't, have, uh, wouldn't have gone there. Uh, did I tell you, speaking of Ghostbusters too, hmm. I have a friend who raps under the name of Cool Z. He's from Iowa. Oh, sure. But he has two of my favorite tattoos ever. He has the Ghostbusters logo on one shoulder, and then on his other shoulder he has the Ghostbusters 2 logo, which is the thing that really completes the look, and I think is just delightful. Yep. I recall that uh, being described, and I need to find it clever also. I'm not sure if clever is necessarily Oh, sure. Right. You got one, you got two. Oh, well, there you go. Mathematically sound, if nothing else. Clever is the day is long. Mm-hmm. In the summer... Because right now the days are pretty short. Oh. And recognizing that two comes after one is more clever than a a winter day is long. It got so complicated so fast. I know. That's what happens when you bring calendars into these things. My bad. I forgive you. Thank you. (laughs) One of the other interesting things that comes up with Thea is, I feel like when you've reached a point in your career where you have pretty much single-handedly destroyed the olympic gods of ancient greece and subjugated all of your cohort of the original titans maybe you can start leaving ceo of the third largest publisher off of your resume <laughs> that did seem a little what's the word for it It seemed yeah it didn't fit i mean don't get me wrong very very impressive if you're listening and you're the third largest publisher in the world i am so happy for you, and thanks for listening. And our Patreon page is <laughs> <laughs> patreon.com slash ttwasteland. You could maybe throw a couple of those publishing books our way. But I gotta say, when you are a Greek god who is apparently the mother of the son, which I guess means that Lilith's brother is the son, hmm. I feel like at that point, yeah, it, it's like, I've won a Pulitzer Prize, I've won a Nobel Peace Prize, and... A spelling bee. Yeah, and no, 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 and runner-up in a spelling bee. Ah, wow. (laughs) Like, if she was the number one publisher in the world, I see, you know, if you're the best at anything, that's impressive. But, like, third most successful wig manufacturer in the tri-state area, not too shabby. Well, I don't know. It's a little bit apples and oranges, so, you know,
1: the Greek gods all about power and, and struggle and I'll kill you and whatnot. Well, it
0: seems but, like that's
1: what publishing's all about, too, from the last couple issues. Right. So, in our world, the dollar is almighty. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that's the currency by, by which power is measured. Sure. Publishing's pretty huge, so if you're third largest, that's almost as good as killing all the other gods.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I guess. I think publishing is a little bit more analogous to killing Greek gods than uh, an apples and orange situation. I think it might be like a... Macintosh to Cortland's. Oh, like a Granny Smith to a Honeycrisp. Oh, man, that is a huge discrepancy there. Mm -hmm. Although, the nice thing about Honeycrisps is a lot of your sweeter apples aren't good for baking because they get mealy. Oh, it's a good pie apple. Honeycrisp is a good pie apple, Mm -hmm. as is a Granny Smith. I would put those together in a pie. Oh, all day long. Nice mixture. Mm. Man, I would love to have pie. I'm going to make some pie soon. Nice. I made some persimmon butter. I'm going to make a persimmon butter pie. That sounds delightful. Yeah. Like a custard pie? Yeah, it's like a custardy pie. It cu- ends up coming out a little bit like a pumpkin pie in terms of consistency. I made one with apple butter before, but uh, but I haven't tried it with persimmon butter. I think it'll be better. Got a little cardamom in there. Cardamom, you were telling me earlier, is... It's the new it's, cinnamon. It's It's, it's great. stock is going up. Oh, its stock is rising. It's no piece of shit like Allspice. Allspice, <laughs> we've been over this. Get over yourself.
1: You're really just a berry.
0: Yeah. Why? One, one of them. Your You're one berry. <laughs> Allspice. Come on. So, uh, Hyperion shows up in this. Yay. Hey. Ugh. Now, you said a sarcastic yay there, and I understand why. Hyperion is definitely being as big a turdbag as he has always been. He is a whiny little shit. He is still manipulative and egocentric and narcissistic and... A manipulative piece of shit. I hate Hyperion. Don't get me wrong. Still calling him fuckface. But I was actually happy to see him. Because if he shows up in this book on the same page as our buddy Zach Wingman, that means that Zach Wingman is definitely not fuckface. Oh, so point. In that context, genuine hooray out of me. That's right. We had that concern. I, it was a big concern. Mm. And yeah, I haven't read ahead at this point. So I was like, shit, is he? I, I, I'm i getting a Hyperion vibe off of him. And he's not, which is great news in a couple of regards, because it means that Lilith is probably not dating her uncle or her dad, which is nice.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: I guess he wouldn't be her dad. Her dad uh, is definitely dead, uh, according to Thea's. Oh, yeah. Burnt him right up. Yep. Postcoital torching. Oof. Like, immediately post-coital. Mm-hmm. She could tell immediately she was Prego and was just like, zap. Bye. Man. She does like setting people on fire. Yeah, that is not a good trait. No, it's a terrible hobby. You ever meet somebody who likes to do that? Don't stick around. Exactly. Somebody takes you back to their house, and you see on their bookshelf, like, immolation for dummies. (laughs) You hit the bricks immediately. Make an excuse so
1: it's not awkward. Right. Well, obviously. I gotta go feed the meter for my car that's
0: parked outside. Uh Uh-huh. Be right back. But you're not gonna come back. No, don't come back. They'll set you on fire. Mm -hmm. Not worth it. Probably. We do see that Donna comes by her grief counseling techniques the honest way. I think it may be a uh, cultural tradition for her. Because we see that I think Oceanus is like pretty grief stricken because his wife Tethys has been killed by the giants. And uh, Rhea rolls up on him and is like, hey, hey, cheer up, buddy. A lot of people are dead. Yeah, yeah, that was harsh. (laughs) It totally was. Like, totally ties into the Titans being dicks, but also it is just, like, kind of nice to just be like, oh, that's where Donna gets it from. Like, she was raised in a culture based on ancient Greece. I I guess that's just how you got a role. You tell people to get over it. Yeah. The other thing
1: about that panel I was curious about is how they got past the whatever the
0: governing body for codes and ethics and stuff, the... Comics, uh, comics association. Code. So what you're referring to, I believe, is the fact that Tethys, as she is dying, is bare-chested. And you see nipples. They're not colored in. but
1: uh, Yeah, one panel it looks like there's pasties on them, and then another panel it doesn't. And I was surprised to see that, because we haven't seen many nipples, female or otherwise, portrayed in right. these books.
0: Well, you will actually note, this did not go through the Comics Code.
1: Oh, it doesn't have that thing on it.
0: No, and I would be curious as to whether they had to make coloration changes or do something with the artwork to obscure the toplessness of Tethys in the reprinted version that came out in Tales of the Teen Titans. This is a direct market book and one of the things about that is, at least early on, the direct market books would just kind of bypass the comics code. And so you get depiction of nudity combined with death which, it's not done, and I when I say it, it sounds weird, but it isn't done for titillation, mm-hmm. it, it doesn't seem like. And no pun It intended. isn't like, yeah, and it isn't like a gross, exploitative picture of nudity, but those things combined really do kind of lend an epic quality to the battle that's happening here. Mm-hmm. And I feel like it's really well done.
1: Yeah, I agree, and strange, in a comic, well, like, I guess most comics of this era and perhaps, in general, the way that, you know, especially the female characters are really sexualized in their costumes and everything. It was weird to see boobs and have it it not be that way.
0: Right. And it kind of shows how low the bar is set in comics, that it's nice and refreshing when the naked dead lady isn't sexualized. But there you have it. This is like 80, 85 that this is published, the reprints in 86. But this is around when you see Watchmen coming out, which was also done, I believe, direct to market. Mm. So, uh, you know, you also see a lot of big blue dongs flopping around. Mm-hmm. So. Yep. yep. The old Manhattan treatment. Mm-hmm. <laughs> the Manhattan transfer. That's what he called his teleportation process, but I believe that was also an acapella group that our parents liked. <laughs> Um, Along with the Nylons and the Bobs. I remember the Nylons. You don't remember the
1: Bobs? I remember the name, but I I really remember the Nylons because there's this one record cover where a guy's holding... It looks from a distance like he's snapping his fingers, but he's, I think, holding a little like a Vienna sausage or a baby carrot or something in it. It disturbed
0: me to no end. Dude, the Nylons album covers are astounding. I'm going to try to post some (laughs) pictures of those on the social media. See if you can find the one. It's the dude with the beard and he's got this weird snapping (laughs) finger
1: hand thing that is just gross. Oh, man. Yeah, they had that song, Prince of Darkness.
0: Ooh. You remember? No, did they use it in the movie? Oh, they should have because it had the no, chorus. They, they the chorus. Have. <laughs> John Carpenter would have loved it. <laughs> John Carpenter's scoring oh, did not need any help oh, from put the some Nylons. Just synthesizers on top of this. <laughs> well, if you put synthesizers on top of it, it's not an acapella band anymore. Oh, I'm okay with that. Oh, I don't think the Nylons would be. It's part of their branding. Oh, that's true. One size fits all.
1: Uh-huh. <laughs> I think that was one of their records. That makes sense. Uh, what are we talking about? Um, the
0: song "Begone, Prince of Darkness" by the Nylons. <laughs> of course. So one of the other interesting things that comes up in this comic book, at least it was interesting to me, was the character Destiny. You familiar with that guy? No, but at first I was like, oh my god, is that Rudy? No. It is weird, because he does wear the big purple robe, and originally his robe was always supposed to be a fairly nondescript color, either gray or brown, but I feel like in comic books if you have a robe, eventually it will be drawn as purple. There's so many purple robes, like every cult that we've seen ends up wearing a purple robe, even if they don't start that way. Destiny is not in a cult, though. He does belong to a group called the Endless. Did you ever read Sandman, the Neil Gaiman one? Oh, sure. Yeah, yeah he was one of the Endless. He's uh, mm-hmm. Dream's brother, Destiny. So it's uh, Destiny, Delirium, Dream, Despair, Death, Destruction, and uh, Desire. I think that's, I think there were seven of them. I think that's them. Oh, and of course, D's Nuts. I don't know. First of all, having Dream and Delirium be two of the big seven, it seems like you could cover, they're kind of the same thing. It's like, do they have Daydreaming in there, too? Because that starts with a D, too. Mm. I don't know. But what's kind of weird about the character Destiny is he is the only one of the Endless that was not created by Neil Gaiman for that series. He was created by Marv Wolfman in 1972 for a title called Weird Mystery Tales. And he served kind of as the Crypt Keeper type character for that. He would be the host of a horror series, essentially, a horror anthology series, like The Crypt Keeper or The Old Witch or uh, Ezekiel P. Shadow Maven, like one of those classic characters. Oh, sure. And then Wolfman, I think, is trying to repurpose him in this issue and in some other stories as almost like Uatu the Watcher type guy, Mm -hmm. like big deal guy that shows up when huge events with a capital E are unfolding. And you see his depiction. He's a blind man who carries a large book that is chained to him in which all of history, past, and future is written. Mm -hmm. I think it's interesting that Neil Gaiman chose to repurpose him and a couple of other of the characters who were originally intended to be hosts for horror anthologies, like Cain and Abel were uh, the hosts of, I think, House of Mystery. And they get used in the Sandman books too. And I think that kind of makes sense with the story that Gaiman is telling, which is kind of, I don't know, almost like a meditation on meta-narrative. So to have the hosts of other stories be incorporated into your story about stories, I think is a really interesting choice and one that makes a lot of sense. But it was kind of jarring to have Destiny show up, because I am used to just seeing him in this one little corner of the DC Universe that was Sandman, which then I feel like got erased from the rest of the DC universe when Vertigo got its own imprint. I don't
1: know if you're going to get to it in the the timestamp, but there was a reference to Road to Hell and Crosby Hope on
0: page 15, which I meant to look up, but didn't. Oh, that is a reference to the Bing Crosby and Bob Hope Road to movies, which I think fits fairly neatly into Gar's... Habit of referencing old movies. Uh, Have you seen any of the Road 2 movies? It's like the Road to... Nope. The Road to Bali was one of them. The Road to Morocco. uh, The Road to Utopia is a really weird one. But they made a lot of different Hope and Crosby Road movies, which were these kind of farcical comedies in which Bing Crosby and Bob Hope would get into various comedic adventures and Bing Crosby would do a couple of musical numbers. They're actually really funny. It's weird watching them and realizing that there was a time when Bob Hope was funny. Mm-hmm. Because growing up, Bob Hope was, I mean, he was still active. He was doing like the military special still. Mm-hmm. But he was almost comedically unfunny. Mm-hmm. You know, it was almost funny how cheesy and hack he was. He was like just the embodiment of really hacky humor. And it's weird to realize that there is a time when he was actually very, very funny. And so, yeah, if you haven't seen any of the Road movies, uh, Road to Morocco and Road to Singapore are both really good. Okay. And, yeah, Road to Utopia is worth watching just for how weird it is. All right, so I've got They Might Be Giants. Uh Uh-huh. I've got
1: Road to Singapore, Road to Morocco. Uh Uh-huh. That's three movie homeworks I
0: got. Yep. Pretty good. I want your report on my desk by Monday. And photos of Spider-Man. All right. was me pounding my desk.
1: You got it, Triple J.
0: Yeah. Well... You ready to get into the minutia? Sure. Rick, would you mind singing us in? We got minutia. It's not the biggest part, it's just minutia. Like Corey eating farts, we got minutia. Time to sweat the small stuff. Thanks, Rick. Yeah. So, Corey. Yes.
1: What was your favorite sound effect in this issue? Other than the only sound effect, technically, which that I noticed that was scree. Yeah, there was one scree. I picked...
0: On page nine, Starfire, I think, yelling Donna. There was a Donna that was outlined. There was one more that I that I think counts, and that is uh, Starfire impaling one of the giants. I believe it is the one that has a pile of lizards for a knee, and he goes Ah! Or
1: Arg! Yeah, that looked
0: um pretty ouchy. Yeah, wouldn't wouldn't care for that. She kills a couple of giants in this. She is uh Giant killing machine. She is indeed. Yeah, and those are really the only three sound effects. Conversely, a lot to choose from in this category, sartorially speaking. Which elements of fashion did you feel were worthy of notice? Oh, man. On uh, page 23, the the big picture of
1: uh, Destiny, and in particular Destiny's accessory, his big book
0: of facts mm-hmm. that's chained to him yeah it's it's actually uncle john's bathroom reader he wants to make sure he doesn't lose it in case he needs to uh take a trip to the can uncle john's bathroom reader oh you're not familiar Mm-mm. it's a big book of trivia that's a bathroom book very popular oh. okay. yeah i think uh maybe maybe destiny has some spicy poops to rank on the side <laughs> it looks pretty hivy, uh-huh no, it's a it's a, it's a nice it's big book. Classic. Yeah, I think it's a good look for him. Speaking of classic good looks, I want to go with a couple of the things that are from Thea's Time Marches On montage. There are just some great outfits in there, both on her and her purported lovers. The big puffy-sleeved yellow shirt that's on the former head of Sun Publishing before she lights him up is pretty great. All of her dresses look great, and her current Greek goddess look is very Art Deco-inspired and has a weird, especially viewed in the context of her adventures through time, a kind of ancient Greek flopper look to it that I really appreciated. I thought that was a really nice look. She pulls it off. She really does. The other fashion that I want to comment on comes from one of the giants, one who does not meet a good end. But before his death, he's got these tiny little suspenders that are on his Speedo that connect to a weird, like, skull chest plate that he has. And it's just such a bizarre look. I had that too. It reminded me a
1: little bit of the He-Man action figures. How, like, Skeletor and He-Man had that weird little chest plate thing. Except this one looks like an animal whose limbs have been twisted
0: wrongly. Yeah, it is like some kind of a demonic yoga bear. Demonic yoga bear. Yeah, but he has these little sock garter-like suspenders that are coming out that are attached to this uh, dude's speedo, and it's a heck of a look. Yeah, I, I had this
1: guy, too, because he's the one also that I mentioned. It looks like his toes are the snakes or
0: maybe tiger heads. Yeah, tigers, tiger heads with very long tongues. And he does his, I believe, right knee is just a big pile of lizards. And he's wearing a samurai helmet and some uh, spiked knuckle dusters. Mm-hmm. And those two match. They're pretty really kind of
1: pretty purple color, Mm -hmm. which is also echoed in the little straps that hold his shoulder covers on. And I don't know what those are doing, but it looks like he's got like a little decorative thing on the top of his Speedos that's connected by bungee cords that go inside of the Speedos.
0: (laughs) Yeah. Which, you know, who knows? I'm not a giant. Maybe... Maybe the uncomfort of that outfit fuels his battle rage. I think I'd be a little more pissed off if I had to wear that getup. Sure. But yeah, the uh, the fuchsia of his shoulder pads and speedo and the purple of his hat and knuckle duster really, I think, offset the nice seafoam green of his skin tone. And it's a very cohesive look, as bizarre as it is. I... And then he gets stabbed to death.
1: I had that guy, and then I also had uh, his, his purple buddy on the same page, who's got kind of a, a Shiva-looking thing. There's a, a kind of a necklace and jewelry with a bunch of skulls on it. And um, this guy's purple with bright blue hair and bright red eyes. Very colorful. Yeah,
0: and he appears to be wearing some kind of, like, a uh, shoulder holster for a gun, but over his crotch. Yep. Really cool spear thing. Yep, and then uh, has a different cool spear poking through his chest as Starfire pushes him backwards onto it. He's the fellow who says, "Arg!" Arg, indeed. Mm-hmm. Let's take this party to the Bozo. What incident of one character calling another character a bozo, either literally or metaphorically, would you like to highlight? Both of mine
1: came from Thea. On page two, there are two separate instances, but one she uh, calls, I think it's Zeus, a a fool. Yep. And that's just a classic,
0: straight up fool. Yeah. I'm a a supervillain. I'm going to call you a fool. You're all a bunch of fools. Some of you are human fools. Zeus isn't a human fool. Mm -mm. He's a celestial fool. That's right. Mm -hmm. So classic fool. Sure.
1: And then um, doubling down on that, she calls him a uh, doddering senescent dolt. I had to look up senescent.
0: Which is weird because she's his aunt.
1: Yeah, I feel like age and the
0: family tree stuff gets all gnarly. Yeah, I think that's fair. It is indeed a a gnarled family tree. Mm -hmm. But uh, yeah, senescent means uh, basically aging, Mm. getting old. So that was a pretty good... Those are pretty good disses. My favorite diss also does come from Thea. It's on page five when she says, to Lilith and your father ah his memory still burns bright though not nearly as bright as his flesh did oh burns literally yeah oof I read that and I was just like oh zing
1: and she's kind of like has this (laughs) smile on her face like she knows she's just done a good zinger
0: uh huh it's a really nicely done panel and really nicely like oh snap moment of her Talking to Lilith about her dead dad, who she will never meet. Zing! (laughs) Yeah, Lilith is, you know, understandably horrified by
1: the whole thing, too, and and Thea's just like, no, it's no big deal, whatever, we do this all the time. Look, your brother the
0: son doesn't give me shit like this. Yeah. uh... Corey, did you have a timestamp in this issue? I did. It was
1: what I think is the second reference to Beast Boy saying that Deborah Winger won't stop calling
0: him. Yeah, and it really does come out of nowhere, too. It, it It is another, I believe, example of just Beast Boy not understanding the dialogue that is going on surrounding him. Cyborg has an almost Beast Boy-like moment of banter right before then that sort of sets up it doesn't really. So, Zach Wingman is saying, We will find my beloved or I'll die trying. And Cyborg says, Something tells me Wings has a bad case of the hots. <laughs> Which is a weird thing to say. Bad case of the (laughs) huts. Bad case of the huts. (laughs) Especially a weird thing to say in the context of, we're going to go rescue my friend who is missing. But Gar takes this opportunity, as I gotta believe he takes any opportunity, to say, heck, Deborah Winger's got it for me. Man, phone calls every day. When's that poor kid ever gonna learn? Mm. Anyway, Deborah Winger's great. I loved her in Legal Eagles. I think we do you think that that she generally tried to have movies that made references to birds because her name is Deborah Winger and that's maybe also how that came up in this context of Zach Wingman and Gar is turned into a bird. Do you think uh, she had some influence? I think maybe, (laughs) yeah. I think maybe she contacted the band Winger. Ooh, is she related to Kip Winger? Oh, maybe. I don't know. That would be cool. What a talented family. I guess. (laughs) What was Winger's big song? Oh, I can't remember. Me either. I always mix him up with Warren. Corey, every issue of a Teen Titans comic (laughs) has an Aqualad, the greatest of Teen Titans, and also a Beast Boy, the worst of Teen Titans. In this issue, who was your... mm, Let's start with Beast Boy. I just went with Beast
1: Boy again. He didn't really... Anything except what he normally does is like make kind of a goofy joke. He did a, a good job with the snake, yeah. He, he did a nice it. job fighting
0: the giants, mm-hmm. actually.
1: But I mean, all he, eh, I don't know, he got snaky with the giant,
0: and yeah, that's kind of it. Turned into a giant bird, carried Vic around, yeah, that, that was, was pretty that cool. That was nice, but yeah, other than that, I felt like compared to the rest of the gang, he didn't have a strong showing. I think, compared to at least one member of the gang, I think compared to Nightwing, he did a pretty great job. Nightwing is who I chose as my beast boy. Just kind of a little twerp in this issue. Hmm. He got on my nerves uh, a couple of times. First of all, saying like, you guys, I think maybe we should call our parents and have them sort this out for us. We're over our heads here. Dude, you're off the heels of fighting Trigon and defeating Trigon. You have fought the Titans and the Greek gods before. Why would you call Superman in on this? His whole deal is supposed to be that He wants to stand on his own and not be in the Justice League's shadow. It just seemed not right coming from him. And also his fixation on Coriander not killing. I understand, like, yeah, you're superheroes, you don't kill, that's a thing. But you're fighting ancient Greek monsters. She's in the midst of battle, it's clearly an act of self-defense, and you're at war. And this has come up before, this whole, like, Cori, you can't do that. It's against our values as superheroes. It just annoyed me.
1: Yeah, that's fair. I found myself kind of wishing we had the Sokka category for this one. Because I
0: totally would have
1: had a Dick Grayson.
0: Yeah, for for the, like, we should call Superman in on this Mm -hmm. moment. Yeah, I was like, dude, you just finished saving the whole world. Yeah. What's a pantheon? Come on. Sheesh. It's not like you're fighting the ancient Egyptian gods. Mm. Man, you don't want to fuck with Osiris. Mm-mm. Odie will Diss you so bad. <laughs> that too. Plus, like, the, yeah, the, the old school Osiris, he'll just, like, fucking cut his dick off, throw it in a river, and then, I don't know, will probably turn into a monster. I don't remember exactly what, but I know that, like, people going and looking for their sex parts was a big part of ancient Egyptian mythology. Really? Yeah. I feel like specifically Osiris' missing dick was a big thing. You think that was the inspiration for that King Missile song, Detachable Penis? Maybe. I think it was the inspiration for the Hardy Boys novel, The Case of the Missing Member. Ha! <laughs> <laughs> oh, Dixon's done it again. <laughs> Conversely, who
1: was your Aqualad? I had Starfire, and when I saw my notes on it,
0: it cracked me up because I said she kicks giant ass. Quite literally. Yes. Yeah, she does. Yeah. No, I agree. I think Starfire did a great job, not just with that, but also being emotionally supportive of her friend Donna. And saving Donna. And saving Donna's life in an awesome action montage, deflecting the sunfire bolts from Thea that came through the portal. She just did a great job, especially not chastising Donna for emotions that she can't control. Because there there was part of me that was like annoyed with Donna for... Still caring about Hyperion. But, I mean, she does make the point, yes, these emotions that I had were artificially induced through magic, but I still feel them. And so, yes, I'm still upset. And it was actually kind of a moving scene where she's like, it's not like the love that I feel for my husband. And Coriander, like, gets it and goes, but it's similar. Mm -hmm. And Donna has tears in her eyes and she's like, yeah, similar. Mm Mm-hmm. It's just really a nice moment. And uh, yeah, Starfire just across the boards. She's a good giant killer. She's mm-hmm. a good friend. And she's a good combatant. And She takes up for herself, too. Her dick's like, don't do that. And she's like, fuck this. Yeah, fuck this. I'm killing giants. Fuck this. Fuck those guys. Yeah. Let's do it. And this. if you don't like it, fuck you. Yep. So great job, Starfire. Thanks. Different Corey. <laughs> oh, sorry. <laughs> All right, maybe the hardest time I've ever had with this category, as I mentioned before, but what was your favorite panel? Oh, geez, yeah. Ah, there's so many. I narrowed it down to two
1: that were adjacent. Uh, There's page 22 and page 23. Page 23, it's just the whole page. It's the final page, and it's the one where uh, we see Destiny up in the right-hand corner just being like, oh, you guys. Mm -hmm. You get the gods of night and fear in the left-hand corner. Big shit's going down. But I think that's actually my runner-up. And my favorite one is this one on page 22 in the the lower right-hand corner. And it is, in my opinion, the most heavy metal (laughs) panel ever in these comics. And it's all of the Greek gods, like, raising
0: their fists and shouting, Dead! It is a weird battle cry. Cronus, I believe it is, is holding his scythe in the air and is uh, saying that, Thea must uh, suffer for her deeds. We will see Thea dead. And then all of the other ancient Greek titans just yell as a battle cry, DEAD! It is very metal looking, but uh, I do like to believe that maybe they're at a Grateful Dead
1: concert. Oh, yeah. Yeah.
0: That is a gorgeous panel. One of the ones that I had on my list was the immediate preceding page. My first note for favorite panel just said, all of them? Mm -hmm. Question mark. But the page before that is another big splash page that is, the gods of night have just been freed. So it's Phoebe and Coyus are just flying around, laying waste to all of the giants, but it's also the scene in which you see Tethys has just died and Oceanus is mourning her, Hyperion's being a fucking dick but he's a well-drawn dick and he's standing next to this giant axe you got zach wingman carrying beast boy down there's just so much going on and it's so beautifully drawn and the the other one that i definitely want to make sure that i mention, we've talked about it a little bit but it's the time marches on montage of thea describing her exploits over the last century and there's just so much going on you see in one corner there's gangsters during prohibition times, which you can tell by the design of their car and the fact that there are shattered liquor bottles on the ground next to them. You see her taking on a series of lovers, the Sun Publisher guy, a Clark Gable looking dude in a tuxedo, some kind of a Air Force pilot, and there's just like a spread of magazines and newspapers below her. And then in the corner of that you have the Sun Publishing skyscraper with a stock ticker showing the profits rising in the background behind it. There's just so much going on. And inset into that you see her having sex with the publishing dude and then lighting him on fire at the end. And that's just such a minor note within it, but it's just really well done. Parts of it look like it could be a book cover for The Great Gatsby, and then other parts of it look like it's like a hippie love fest. It's really cool. The design is really well thought out, too. It conveys a whole shitload of information and plot in one Yeah, almost instantly. Like, you just get the idea, like, oh, she's just been fucking her way through the centuries and having a great time doing it, and her fortune is on the rise, which is illustrated by that little stock ticker that starts in the uh, lower left-hand corner, and then in the very upper right-hand corner, you see it just kind of lightninging up through the page, just shattering it as she goes on to become the third most popular wig merchant in the tri-state area. I'm sorry, publisher in the world. <laughs> Your attitude towards the power of big publishing is
1: very uh, cavalier. <sighs> I'm sorry. And big publishing, if you're
0: listening, give us some money. You can send those checks to Tighten Up the Defense, P.O. Box 20311, Portland, Oregon, 97294. Thanks. Or just donate directly to our Patreon page. Look, if you're the number three publisher in the world, you've got options and I don't want to limit them. Give us money however you see fit. And you know what? You don't have to be the third biggest publisher in the world to give us money. You can be the fourth biggest. Fifth biggest. Heck, if you're in the top ten publishers in the world, give us some money. Hey, let's not limit it to publishers. If you are a wig maker... Oh, sure. If you are... Don't feel No, no. I I just put you on par with the number three publisher in the world. Yeah. Send us some wigs. Look, I want to be egalitarian about this. I don't care if you make wigs, if you publish books, if you... Produce fine spirits. Mm Mm-hmm. If you work in a fake dog poop factory, you can all give us money. Everyone listening, give us money. (laughs) (laughs) That's Tighten Up the Defense, P.O. Box 20311, Portland, Oregon, 97294. Ding! Well, Corey, I have but one final question I must put to you. Wapoot! In the year of our lord... 1986, and the month of our lord, July. What was Aqualad probably
1: up to? Wapoot! Aqualad was hanging out with his inventor pal, Alan Alder, and uh, was helping him set a world record for the furthest distance a thrown object has traveled. And it was uh, the Aerobee. You remember those? Uh... I do, I do. It's like a uh, frisbee with no metal. Yep, exactly. With uh, help from Aqualad's sea-strengthened arms, uh, that little disc was thrown 1,257 feet. My god. Farthest uh, distance we got. Probably landed on some suburban roof somewhere, never <laughs> to come down.
0: Almost inevitably. I feel like that is what aerobis were for.
1: Yep, that and those those Nerf tri-boomerang things. Uh-huh. Anyway, so that went well. They, they've had a long relationship talking about all kinds of cool stuff and so Aqualad as part of those conversations had said you know I travel a lot I'm always swimming places and I just I really like a good espresso but I don't want to bring the whole machine with me because you know it's just it gets wet it's kind Uh of a pain and so uh Alder got to thinking about this and he was like what's a really simple way that I can allow Aqualad to make awesome coffee and it took him about 19 years but he was able to come up with the aeropress. Oh, which is a, a device that I travel with. <laughs> and I think it makes amazing coffee. It's like a little plastic plunger in a tube and you... Oh, it's like a yeah, like a fancy vacuum sealed french press, right? Yeah, yeah, basically. Yeah, it's got three pieces. Put them together. That's all you need. That's all you need. And uh, Aqualad was was tickled and he travels everywhere
0: with his aeropress coffee maker. Very nice. Now, you said that the arrow Aerobee is the object that has been thrown the farthest. Do you think the reason that it has that title is because bears don't count as objects? Because one time Aquaman threw a polar bear at some poachers, and it was kind of the best thing ever. And I think it might have been farther than that.
1: Yeah, it's it's sort of like a Guinness thing where there's categories of stuff that's tracked. Right, right. And a do. bear isn't just an object. It's a living being. Home. Yeah. Stop trying to centralize
0: bears. Yeah. Society. <laughs> it's not cool. Yeah. Also, don't throw them. <laughs> well, it was at some poachers. They had a coven. Was the bear injured? No. no. The bear was like, it was like a fastball special, but with a polar bear. Ah. Oh, wow. That's, it's amazing. That is pretty, yeah. pretty badass. It's really good. Okay. So that's one thing that Aqualad was probably up to. The other thing that Aqualad was probably up to was attending a film premiere of a movie near and dear to both of our hearts that has come up on this podcast before. Aqualad attended the premiere of Maximum Overdrive. Oh, wow. Yeah, he was a big fan of Theodore Sturgeon and his short stories. He had read Killdozer and he was excited to see this movie that was kind of a ripoff of a Theodore Sturgeon short story. He ended up sitting in kind of a seat of honor. It was next to the star's brother. So he ended up sitting next to Charlie Sheen at this premiere. During the movie, because it was longer than an hour, Aqualad started getting a little bit parched. Asked Charlie Sheen if he could have a Uh little bit of what he was sipping on. Uh (laughs) Uh-oh. Still not sure what was in that flask. But Aqualad went from enjoying the movie to being terrified by the movie. Oh, no. I mean, it's a pretty scary movie. There's that weird giant green goblin mask that's on the hood of a tractor trailer for no apparent reason as near as I can tell. Mm -hmm. And that specifically freaked Aqualad the heck out. That's fair. Now, the other thing that Aqualad had been doing that month is listening to the greatest album of all time, Raisin' Hell by Run DMC. Like all good-hearted people, he could not get enough of that album and had been listening to it nonstop. When he got freaked out by Maximum Overdrive... One lyric particularly stuck in his head. I cut the head off the devil and I throw it at you. But when he thought of that lyric, he's like, that's who I need to go to for help. They'll cut the green goblin head off of that giant truck. And then we can throw it at the devil together. Woo! So he sought out Run DMC. And they were able to talk him down. They're they're like Aqualad, Aqualad, come here, come here. Look, it's just a movie. And if you like movies, you're going to love this feature we've been working on called Tougher Than Leather. It's going to be coming out soon. Never saw a wide theatrical release, which is a dar- darn a shame. But they were able to talk Aqualad down, and he ended up, uh, ended up chilling out and is no longer scared of the Green Goblin truck because of Run DMC and their intervention. Well, good job, gang. Yeah, and that is what Aqualad was probably up to. I'm just thinking about that song now. It was such a good song.
1: <sighs> so tough. I remember I first heard it on the school bus. Some kid had a big, like, a Uh boombox. Uh-huh. He was playing that, and I heard that lyric in particular, and (sighs) I I was just like, whoa. He
0: cut off the devil's head. And then threw it at the devil's corpse (laughs)
1: as it was falling. (laughs) Holy shit.
0: Yeah. What a cool guy. Yeah. (laughs) Speaking of cool guys, thanks Mm. for joining us, everybody. Yeah. You're all a bunch of cool, cool people. If you would like to get into touch with us, you can do so either... Through physical mail at Tighten up the Defense, P.O. Box 20311, Portland, Oregon, 97294. Or electronically, as we do live in the future, at ttwasteland.gmail.com. We're also up on the rest of the internets. You can find us there by typing out the title of the show. Just remember that it's spelled T-I-T-A-N, not with a G-H, like a trickster. And yeah, we would love to hear from you. Uh, Another nice way you can support the show is by leaving us a review on your podcatcher of choice. Just go to whatever app you're listening to the show on right now and type in, Tighten up the defense is the best thing I've ever done with my brain and ears. I love it so much, I wish I could hug and kiss it, but it's intangible. Five stars. Wow. I know, they really like it, Corey. It's almost creepy. A little bit. (laughs) But in a good way. Yeah, good creepy. Yeah, good creepy. If you would like to give us money, uh, I would really appreciate it. You can do that at patreon.com slash ttwasteland. If you do, you get access to a whole bunch of bonus material. Uh, I've been doing a series on licensed property tie-in comics, a series of video reviews on those. And man, I did some research on The Human Fly, which was a real-life stuntman that had a comic book based on him. And it is fascinating stuff. And our patrons can check it out on the site. And there's also a monthly podcast that I do with Lisa that's available to our donors called What the Duck? A Podcast Most Foul, but with a W because he's a duck. That's the full name of the show. That's a show that we do about Howard the Duck. We are up to a very interesting point in Howard the Duck publication. It is the story arc in which Howard is being institutionalized for uh, mental issues that he is having, and it is very, very interesting. So, yeah, if you want to check those out, uh, go to patreon.com slash ttwasteland. It also is just a really nice way for us to know that you support the show and want us to be able to continue doing it. So, thank you for that. What's coming up next week? Oh, well, next week we'll be back with the Defenders number 63 and the continuation of the Defenders for a Day storyline. Which is a lot of fun, but... Holy moly, there's a lot of characters in these two books these days. So many. The last issue of The Defenders had 23 different Defenders. That's a lot of Defenders. It's so many. Who is your favorite one? Oh, jeez. Of the guest Defenders.
1: Well, my favorite one from the comics that I used to read did a bad thing because he was part of the gang that tried to capture the Hulk. Oh, yeah, you're
0: talking Iron Fist?
1: Iron Fist, yeah. Yeah, One of
0: my favorites in general was also part of that little posse, Black Goliath. But, uh... Yeah, there's just a lot of fun stuff going on in there uh Falcon did a great job and is also a great character Nova did some weird stuff some weird cowboy shenanigans mm-hmm. and he was fun he likes to say blue blazes that's his that's his uh, swear word that's, a, pretty good. that's pretty wholesome yeah blue blazes we'll see you guys next week thanks for joining us dead <laughs> I'm not calling you guys dead. That's just what the Titans said when they were excited. It was like a rallying. Yeah, rally. it's like a, you know, unity. <laughs> dead! Hey <laughs> <laughs> guys. And they knew it. Do you think on Paradise Island, Wonder Woman ever hung out with the old Greek Titans? I don't really know. Were they around Paradise Island? I don't feel like they were very often. But I think that if they did, then Diana, I mean Wonder Woman, would have really gotten along well with uh, Cronus's wife, uh, Rhea. And then the slash fiction about that would be diarrhea.
1: <laughs>
0: that just pops into your head just now,
1: or you had that one on the back burner for a while? I don't want to say. <laughs> <laughs>